important to pull back. Trying to be a good person can be overwhelming in our complex global marketplace. In this podcast, we try to make it a little easier by looking at the details behind consumer movements, product labels, and ethical lifestyles. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. Uh, so I'm Kristen Pugh. I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. This episode, we're also joined by Alexandra Sundersing, who is going to help us dig into the topic of food and colonialism. So Lex is a, an historian of food, migration, and labor, and uh, she's currently working toward a PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So I'm curious, um, now that you've been out of Toronto for a little while, is there like a food that you think of as quintessentially Toronto? I don't know if I think about it as like quintessentially Toronto, but because I'm not in a major city, there's not as many like yeah. street hot dog vendor things. Sure. There are a lot of food trucks mm. um, and there are food trucks that I wasn't expecting. Like there's a pandemonium donuts, um, <laughs> which apparently was founded, I think by alumni and they like stop and they're, they're like on campus and they will sell until they run out of donuts. And then they're just like, okay, we're done now. Um, and they have a brick and mortar shop, but they have like continued to use the food truck. That's nice. Yeah, I get to stay mobile. Yeah. So I miss stationary street food. <laughs> and I, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not excited that all Toronto move. has to offer is hot dogs, but I miss being able to see ubiquitous hot dog men at all intersections. <laughs> yeah, it's stuff like that. Yeah, if I remember correctly, you were interested in food trucks for a little while, right? Yeah. I, yeah. So I started my MA thinking that I was going to write about street food. Um, and like legislation around street food because I was really mad that we only had hot dogs. And so I was like, I'm going to write a research project that finds out why we only have hot dogs. Uh, the answer is racism. Um, sure. <laughs> Wait, what? It's like 1800s racism. Oh yeah. Um, the reason that, I mean, obviously I'm being kind of flippant, but the reason that we have hot dogs basically only in Toronto is that when other ethnic minority groups that weren't Italian or Polish started making street food stands, there was a lot of like health and sanitation panic. Um, um, yeah. And somehow hot dogs, especially because definitely the worst way to eat them is you can boil them. <laughs> um, people were like, yes, this is clean. <laughs> and like really what they meant is this is vaguely Germanic. Um, and so, yeah. So like cities like Chicago that have like a huge uh, Latino population have people walking around selling things from other cultures and that has somehow been more permissible i don't mm. i mean chicago has a reputation for being dirty which i'm not sure is fair having not yet been there but mm. but yeah like that's that's one of the reasons why like toronto and to a lesser extent new york have only hot dogs it's just like there was a racist health panic when <laughs> other people started making food on the street and then Eventually, city council just legislated and was like, no, you're literally only allowed to sell hot dogs. And they have, like, the reason all those stands are, like, exactly the same is they have to conform to a set of, like, weird laws about, mm. um. And we just haven't bothered to change those? Like, we, like, well, the, when I, I guess, like, two or three years ago, when I thought I was going to write this project on street food <laughs> is when people started being like, it's very boring that we only have hot dogs. <laughs> and they're like, I also want to be able to pay $15 for street salad. And then we got those food trucks that are on St. George Street, mm. um, at the, like, by the Bata Shoe Museum on campus. Yeah. And those are all part of this, like, 
new effort by city council to diversify our street food, except like they're diversifying it on like three Toronto streets and only in a very, it's a very Toronto way. solution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Overpriced pilot on a few streets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By contrast, um, there's like a huge movement, um, around street vendor legalization in California. Mm. Like they just made all street vending, I think all street vending legal last year. Huh. Um, which solved a like weird loophole problem where police would impound people's street vending stuff and then functionally extort them to get it back. Yeah. Um, But if you are, especially an undocumented migrant, that's often part of the many things that you're doing to make money. And so California, I guess, because undocumented uh, immigration is a much more pressing front page issue all the time, they had a lot of legislative push to change that. And last year they legalized street vending across the whole state. Wow. Um, and then I know um, New York is in the middle of, like, unionizing their street food workers, something like that. I know Professor Krishnan Ray at NYU is doing a bunch of stuff on street food and is, like, if you follow him on Twitter, there's, like, a lot of, like, here's what's going on at the street food vendors meeting or, like, here's what's going on at the city hall meeting where mm-hmm. we, like, showed up with a bunch of vendors to tell them what it's actually like to be on the street vending. And so I know there's also a push in New York, um, but... Yeah, no, no push in Toronto. We're just, it's okay for us to have $15 Chinese food in a truck, I guess. <laughs> nobody, nobody valued walking on wheels. <laughs> Who knew hot dog stands were such a rabbit hole? Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what, so that's what I started. I was like, I hate that we only have hot dogs. I'm going to write a master's thesis. It's like, why do we only have hot dogs? And then it got really hard to dig the documents out. Um, And I ended up instead finishing my MA writing about the, like, global history of food as a diplomatic tool. Mm, Yeah. Um, And now food is like a... Pad Thai robot? Yes. Yeah, the Pad Thai (laughs) robot was like a huge chunk of my footnotes. (laughs) The Pad Thai robot, yeah. You have to explain what the Pad Thai robot is, because I think it's amazing. Okay, I don't know what that is. Please explain it to me, as if I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The Pad Thai robot is a robot... Made by the Thai government, which I'm sure has a more, like, standardized name than the Pad Thai (laughs) robot. But, um, yeah, it's a robot that is supposed to objectively taste and rank the quality of Pad Thai against this standard that the Thai government has deemed as what authentic Pad Thai tastes like. Wait, what? I I have so many questions. Yeah, so it, it tastes and it measures, like, sourness and sweetness, and it's like, oh, well, like, sourness is supposed to be a 52, but this one's a 56, so it's, like, kind of not authentic. Hang on. <laughs> Robots have tongues now? <laughs> I, you know, I don't really understand the engineering part of this robot, but... Does it work? So from what I understand, it measures, like, the chemical signature of the pad thai. And it can, like, scan for compounds. So it's not tasting the way you and I taste. But it is tasting in the sense that it, too, has a method of recognizing certain chemical compounds and matching them to things that it has tasted before. Mm. Um, And so they said it and they were like, you know... NaCl2 or whatever like (laughs) you're supposed to have this much of that if it's authentic and then that's what it's scanning for it's like oh this has more or less of this thing that I thought okay so my next question is uh why 
Um, <laughs> well, as I discovered in my MA project, uh, the this is like the most recent development in what I termed gastropolitics. Um, and there is some really cool research out of the University of Southern California's School of Public Diplomacy mm-hmm. on the topic. Um, Sam Chapel Sokol, I think, is the the big name. Um, but yeah, basically, the Thai government as a method of soft power strategy was like, what if we got everyone really into Thai food? <laughs> and so... I mean, it worked. <laughs> in the last like 12 to 15 years, if you've noticed uh, like a proliferation of Thai restaurants, a lot of it is actually that. Like it's Thai government funded or Thai government expedited or ameliorated culinary expansion so that people will like and or want to go to Thailand. I mean, I, I really think that was a successful strategy. <laughs> yeah. So do, do other countries try this too? Um, I mean, yeah. So there are a couple of countries. The argument that I ran through in my MA was basically that this is a really old practice and this is just the newest development. Mm-hmm. So I sort of ran it through case studies. And the argument that I made is that the earliest version of soft power diplomacy using food is France standardizing its cuisine and doing things like creating the brigade system in kitchens. Okay. Um, and that, that, what made... is the brigade system? That sounds so it's very like you go to a fancy restaurant and there's like the sauce guy and the meat guy and the like vegetable guy. And like, I the... didn't, but I can imagine what that's like. <laughs> so yeah. So when your dish gets cooked in many fancy kitchens, there's like a dessert person and a sauce person and a mm. meat person. And like you order, I don't know, like steak and asparagus. And it's actually like, mosaic composed Mm. by a brigade of people in the kitchen and so like an order comes through for steak and asparagus and in many restaurants what happens is like the vegetable guy because it's usually a guy uh (laughs) cooks the asparagus and puts it and then the the, like meat guy makes your steak and then there is someone who's checking that the composition of your plate matches what they've decided plating looks like at the restaurant wow um that sounds honestly less fun as a cook you're just focusing on one thing yeah, and, and like, there's, like, a hierarchy, like, <laughs> wow. if you, like, like people don't often want to work in pastry and desserts, and it's, like, people do want to work in the, like, complicated meat-slash-starches section. Mm. Um, yeah, and so this is all a French invention, and a lot of formal restaurant stuff is a French invention, and I argued that that was one way of becoming dominant, and so that's why you have, like different styles of dining in the 17 and 1800s. Like you can dine a la Russe, which is where everything is put on the table and you take a little bit of it and really all of it is cold. Um, (laughs) And then you can dine like a la Francaise, which is where everything comes out in courses and like it's composed by a kitchen brigade. Um, There's like a lot of this mixed in with like the history of the Ritz Carlton and the Mm. history of like hotel dining and like women getting to go out to restaurants for the first time. Right. Yeah. Were women not allowed to go to restaurants? For a while, there were very male spaces. Mm, interesting. And then women started going to tea houses. And then the, like, fancy lunch that people go to when they see a matinee show at the theater becomes, like, socially acceptable for men and their wives. And then Yeah, but huh, women wouldn't be like, able to go by themselves. They'd have to be escorted by a man, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, how, how would they know where to go? <laughs> Honestly. And, and also, they don't have pockets, so who's holding their money? <laughs> You have to bring your husband for his pockets. That's why pocket dresses are such an important invention. Uh, yeah, no, I I frequently, frequently will joke with people about the feminist importance of deep pockets. And I'm not talking about being wealthy. I'm just like, no, I need to be able to fit my cell phone in my pants. Like, this is a feminist crisis. 
So I argued that after that level of diplomacy, then things like making yourself a culinary destination a la Acapulco Mm. um, and like being like the place where people go and eat a bunch of stuff. And so I argued that Mexico in attempting to combat this like image as a place where you go and you get sick with Montezuma's revenge, that they sort of do the second wave of culinary Mm. diplomacy or gastro diplomacy by making themselves a destination where people want to go to that country to eat. And then the third wave of it is trying to get that by making your cuisine popular elsewhere than your country Mm -hmm. so that people will see cuisine as a gateway to want to visit your country. So that wave, Thailand is doing it. Malaysia has a project. Mm. Um, Korea has a bunch of research institutes, uh, like the Kimchi Research Institute. Nice. Um, Fun research institute. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, those are all part of that wave. And if you've noticed in the last like five to 10 years, UNESCO has been certifying cuisines as part of the, or culinary events, depending on what it is, as Mm. part of the intangible heritage of the world. Okay. Part of the argument that I made is that like, this is a push on the part of countries to get their culinary traditions recognized so that people will think they are something valuable to go see so that you don't just go to Korea for a vacation. You go to Korea around the time of year that the ritual of Kinjang is happening and you go and you see if you can, mm-hmm. people making kimchi, and that's the thing you go for in the same way that you would go to Brazil or Trinidad for carnival, or in the same way that you would go like to Japan for the cherry blossoms. Countries are attempting to make their cuisine and culinary rituals like a thing that people travel to go see. And didn't uh, I think I remember you telling me once that Canada tried this and just massively fucked it up? We are not really that good. At- <laughs> Soft culinary diplomacy. Um, You're telling me people don't want Tim Horton. <laughs> basically, our culinary diplomacy strategy has just been like, hey, guys, we have great raw materials. <laughs> so, like, you know, we are like, look at this beef, way less hormones than America. <laughs> or like, Not berries. wrong, but also maybe not the most effective. <laughs> well, that's like the Alberta beef slogan. It for a long time was eat Alberta beef, and then the mad cow crisis happened. Sure, yeah. (laughs) And then after the mad cow crisis abated, they were like, oh, we need a new slogan. And the new slogan they came up with was eat Alberta beef again. (laughs) But then people were like, just reminds people people like, wait, why did I stop? (laughs) And then they would look up the mad cow scandal, and it was just like a terrible, but yeah, that's emblematic. Alberta is not great at branding. Albert. <laughs> yeah, but that that was an emblematic Canadian culinary diplomacy mm. move. Um, the things we've been most successful at are like alcohols and desserts. Mm. Like everyone wants to eat a Nanaimo bar. Sure. People. Yeah, but like Nanaimo bars push themselves, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a whole desire to do a project to figure out why on earth there is coconut in that dessert. Because to <laughs> me, that's like, that tells me a whole bunch of things that we are not talking about. But mm. um because, like, custard and chocolate, that's fine. We've had those for a long time. Why are why is there coconut? There's shredded coconut in this dessert, and no <laughs> one's talking about it. Um, but, yeah, so Nanaimo bars push themselves. Ice wine and Crown Royal whiskey mm, yeah. are big exports. We argue with Vermont about the maple syrup. But, like, Canadian... But soon climate change, Vermont won't be able to grow it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so Canadian cuisine, it's becoming more popular, but it's becoming more popular as a 
like, in the same way that, like, the California cuisine of the 90s became popular, mm. not, like, as a cuisine, but as a lifestyle where you, like, eat naturally sourced things. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but that's, that's our best, that's our best go so far, is, like, guys, it's really fresh. That's what we've got. Oh, we just pulled it out of the ground and or sea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The salmon. Our salmon is less creepy. I looked up sea lice the other day, and now I'm, like, afraid of fish. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because it turns out a lot of fish have sea lice, and sea lice are disgusting. What is sea lice? They're lice that fish get. But they don't have hair. They they eat the fish flesh. Oh, no. So if you ever watch those, like, very scary shows that make you grateful that fishermen exist, like Deadliest Catch or whatever, sometimes you'll see them pull up nets, and the nets are just, like bones and a lot of the time it's because the fish got eaten oh my god by like sea lice just like breed and eat the fish to death like a weird paris it's gross if you google it it'll make you sad and grossed out and they're like gray and weird and they (laughs) happen a lot and like now now i'm like how do i know that this sustainably raised in a farm fish didn't have sea lice because a lot of the time they do Mm, is it like a fish farming thing or they are existent in the wild but it happens more often to farm fish because they're like all squished in one place Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not part of the Canadian diplomacy effort. We're not advertising that fish have sea lice, and I hope most of ours don't. <laughs> Eat salmon again. <laughs> All right, so we've been through a few sort of waves of your intellectual interest. So maybe you could tell me, like, where you are now, what's your current project is you're working on? Yeah, Um. so I hear that you're eventual dissertation project changes a lot by the time you've mm-hmm. actually gone to the archives. But um, maybe maybe a good interjection point is the, the article that I'm going to be trying to write next semester. So um, I am working broadly in the field of like anti-imperial history um, with a specific interest in indentured Indian indentured laborers in the British Empire, especially with an interest in um, sort of like surfacing women's stories um, because so often the documents that we have to discuss Indian indenture are legal documents and they're often recorded by British officials. Um, they tend to be about and written by men. Um, and then when women do surface in the story, it's uh, often for really upsetting reasons. Like it's like, oh, we're at a murder trial oh no, and this woman is dead. So I guess we'll just all talk about how that happened um, and so as a consequence of that, I think the story is a little skewed. And the story is that like a bunch of single male migrants left India, they did work in various kinds of agricultural and mining labor. And this is like India's like ignored diaspora because of the shame around indenture um, and around the conditions that people live through. But the truth is that actually a ton of women also indentured um, and their stories are just less written. And so that's what I came into grad school with an interest in. And as of next semester, I'm working on a project um, specifically that looks at, I found a set of complaints made by laborers to the protector of Indian immigrants, which is an invented position that is supposed to sort of be a stopgap measure against all these human rights abuses that are happening on the plantations. I have 17 complaints and 14 are by men and three are by women. And I'm sort of looking at these complaints and what they are saying is happening in contrast with what the protector of immigrants writes home in his annual reports so that I can sort of ask questions about what was life actually like on these plantations? 
why did people complain about the things they complained about? Why are other things that are definitely happening left out of complaints? What does that tell us about social life on these plantations? Um, and trying to especially focus on, you know, what does the silence or absence of women's voices in these documents tell us about what women's roles were like or what women's social life was like on these plantations? Um, so food is like a ever-present but more backgrounded thing in this set of studies that I'm doing because the context of all of this um, labor in the vast majority of places that Indian indentured laborers went is sugar. They are right. they yeah. are almost all farming sugar cane and harvesting sugar cane. So that's that's where food and also my work are at right now. Hey, future Kyla here. At this point in the conversation, we began our discussion on sugar. So for the rest of that chat, you can check our feed for our episode on sugar. Lex also asked me to correct her French dining comment. She mixed up à la russe and à la française. So when listening to her explanation on those terms, know that she got them backwards and that as an academic who prides herself on accuracy, she's very sorry. You can delete that angry tweet you were writing. <laughs> If you want to hear more from Lex, you can follow her on Twitter at Lex Sundersing, or you can get Kristen and I at Pullback Podcast. Thanks for listening. Our next episode, Kristen and I will be taking a look at how best to do laundry. So we'll catch you then. Yes. So I would just ask that, like, my only note so far, because you're both wonderful, is just um, fewer active listening cues, because it's very polite. But as an audio medium, it's weird. Got it. Gotcha. I will nod. Lex is fine. Lex doesn't need to do anything. <laughs> <laughs>